Good morning. So as I was going through and editing the interview with Adam Worst, I realized that there was a potential to make two episodes out of a single interview, one that was of course more mainstream and one that was just kind of fun. Interviewing someone for a podcast is a bit more involved than many people think, and there's a ton of dialogue that doesn't quite make it into the final cut of the show. That being said, I've been wanting to publish some episodes that break, at least in part, from the podcasting norms of DH&I, and I think that this one is perfect. Welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Welcome, Adam. I am so excited to have you on I'm, my show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I actually want to talk about, like, 50s, 80s now. Okay. Um, and the differences. I know we got a bit into that earlier, but... So, the 50s... Um, those are authors like Bradbury and Orwell, mm-hmm. books like 1984, mm-hmm. Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ray Bradbury is just one of, excuse me, the champions of dystopian fiction. Yeah. And it's interesting because the 50s were one of the most idyllic periods in history. And yeah. I think that they weren't idyllic because they actualized the idyllic state. I think they were idyllic because they pined so much for the idyllic state. Yeah. Yeah, like the white picket fence and the nuclear family right, and suburbs yeah, yeah. and um, white flight and things like that um, on the surface seem so uh, clean and yeah. Mm-hmm. But they didn't actually, that, that wasn't, that was the ideal, that wasn't the reality yeah. for a lot of people. Um, so it's just cool because Bradbury was one of those suburban white picket fence fencers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he yeah. ended up creating things like Something Wicked This Way Comes, which uh-huh. we analyzed in October, and um, of course Animal Farm and things like that. So, yeah, what's Animal say? Farm was Orwell. Oh wait, shoot. <laughs> Bradbury, right? Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. I was gonna say because I have read Animal Farm and I knew that was Orwell. <laughs> That's like the only one I know for sure. Wow. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting because it really reveals like how um, fragile that ideal like framework that they tried to set in place during the 50s was and how easily or I guess willingly people were to point out the flaws in literature and maybe not like a ton because you know people were weren't going to be super happy that people were projecting this horrible world in the near future but people like Bradbury and Orwell were willing to go there because it was still an issue and it was just sort of a facade at that point. Yeah and I was thinking about this as well um, where they had the second age of the Red Scare in the 50s or was it the first the first red scare um and kind of almost a backlash to the 1920s where there a lot of immigrants were coming in and then they suddenly became very anti-immigrant thanks Sacco and Vincetti Mm -hmm. things like that that's what jailbird is based on actually so yeah it's just weird it's weird to me that you have this dichotomy between everything's idyllic we have fashion magazines that we can order from every weekend and like (laughs) I don't know, the talking sh- the talking box called the television is yeah. suddenly a thing. And then, like, systemic racism and, um, and a lot of things that were very less, much less than ideal. Mm-hmm. And the Red Scare and 
Yeah, it's crazy. And now I think also um, in the 50s, they had this kind of filter almost over everything. And we also filter our lives in the same way. Yes. Um, it kind of reminds me of like the second self that we were talking about in class. Yeah, yeah. Where we have two selves now, one that's physical and one that's online. Right. Yeah. What for do you sure. think about that? I agree with that for sure. And I think that filtering of lives leads to a lot of issues, I guess, just in general. Um, both for, you know, people on an individual level, people having issues with themselves and their own personal identity, but also with society as a whole and, like, how we're supposed to really treat this um, discrepancy between what we see and what is actually happening. Can we exist without a second self in today's world? Do you think the job market and things like that would be navigable without an online presence? I feel like at this point, I feel like it's near impossible just with how society has taken such a strong hold toward social media in general. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it's one of the many issues or possible problems that have come with, you know, the development of technology in general. Like, I feel it's just, <clears throat> it's now having a more significant effect because it has expanded to a more social scope which yeah, we talked yeah. about in class yeah and it's also expanded to the point that like legally and personally it's very affecting um i almost think about what was i gonna say brain freeze <laughs> is that the right word brain freeze i mean that's when you're eating ice cream too fast <laughs> <laughs> i think it's brain fart Oh, is the really? technical term. Oh. <laughs> I don't like that term. Um, I was going to say mind blown, but that's not the right <laughs> term either. Oh, yeah. And so we're more connected than ever before, but mm -hmm. we're also more distant than ever before. Yeah. And yeah. I think that the second self creates a distance unlike any other. <laughs> and not only a distance from yourself and how you view yourself, but also people view you and then if they see you in real life yeah you know, that's I remember one time so um in the music world the music world's really small and you're probably if you are friends with someone on Facebook that plays whatever instrument you're gonna see them in real life at some point yeah like you can probably be Facebook friends with someone for like two to three years and then meet them in person okay yeah. and like have legitimate interactions with them before meeting with them this happened to me one time with an oboist and I was, um, I had been talking to him a lot about just like general advice and things because he goes to Juilliard and I was trying to get into a good college. Mm -hmm. And then I saw him in person and it was just so different seeing him. Um, I just remember like his hair was flawless even in person. <laughs> and I was, I remember being surprised by, by that, but he seemed a lot taller like mm -hmm. on his profiles and he's like yeah. a very short like he's shorter than I am wow. and I'm five four. Huh. so yeah and so I just remember things like that like yeah. kind of being like I don't know juxtaposed in front of my eyes right right yeah yeah and I think that kind of not only created some distance but also um yeah it was just not it was a weird first impression yeah because I had known him but I hadn't known him right yeah you build this sort of construct of what you have what you think they are versus what they actually are and that is 
very likely gonna be significantly different in some way. And yeah, yeah. that's just a crazy thing crazy. with social media and everything. Do you, what do you think about catfish? This is something that we haven't talked about in class and I'm so surprised. Yeah, I feel like maybe because we're getting into voyeurism a little more now, maybe that it'll come up more with that. But mm. I don't know. I think catfishing is, it's wild, to be <laughs> honest. Like, it's also, but it's honestly, like, scary when you think about it, especially in the context of, like, you know, dating websites and platforms. Like, obviously, that's a big issue. And, like, there's no way to know unless you are being, you know, one-on-one -on -one with someone in real life. And I actually saw, um, have you ever seen American Vandal on Netflix? Yeah. Have you seen the second season? No. Okay, the second season um, gets into sort of an online presence more so than the first season did, and it actually goes into sort of a catfishing scenario, and I won't get into it okay. too much because, um, it's spoilers. spoilers, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really interesting to see, like, just the level of manipulation that goes into doing those things. And it's, like, awful, obviously, but, like, how do you really counteract it? Yeah, like, how do you build legislation around that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and how do you... Because there's a certain amount of artistry that goes into those platforms mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, I have a couple of personal stories to share on that. All right. <laughs> yeah, one of them is that actually in the early 2000s, like 2008 or 2009, mm -hmm. my neighbor got catfished. Oh no. Yeah, and she was in high school at the time and she went to meet this guy and he like robbed her and like beat her up. Oh my god. And it was insane. It was literally insane. Um, and we were, we were so thankful that she didn't get like seriously injured yeah um yeah but my next story is okay there's this online platform that i was going on a lot when i was younger called like imvu i think it was okay it's basically like a fashion game like the sims okay. but yeah, online yeah. with other people right and this one person i like met on that game mm -hmm. and <laughs> she claimed to be bahati prince the model at the victoria's secret model. oh okay yeah, and I didn't know who that was either. It's okay. <laughs> and it was at the time when Body Prinsloo was uh, getting engaged to Adam Levine. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so it was like, I don't know. I just remember like them, like I did, I did the stupid thing. I did the stupid. I gave him my number. And, oh no. Yeah, and she was like, text. She quote unquote was texting me like, "Did you see like Adam proposed to me on the television?" And like. The funny thing is that I also was posing to be not myself. <laughs> what were you I doing? was a 20-year-old Asian at the University of Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and you were actually I what? I was actually like a 10-year-old in Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so this is... <laughs> it was like a double This has layers, wow. <laughs> problem is is that that was so easy for me when I was like literally 10 years old <laughs> and thank goodness again that like I didn't get into some serious trouble yeah that's the, wild the double catfish scheme <laughs> <laughs> when a catfish um runs into another catfish should they recognize each other oh my god I mean apparently not I, it yeah. didn't seem like it the whole situation was fishy we were fishy of each other like <laughs> I mean, yeah. Rightfully so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 
was crazy. That's oh wild. Uh, and yeah, I guess also some of that speaks to like my childhood, like how, I don't know, I was interested in not necessarily like manipulation. That sounds bad. Like, <laughs> I was interested in messing with people on a psychological level. <laughs> <laughs> Messing with catfish on psychological <laughs> Just your typical 10-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like, I don't know, I guess I was interested in, like, the confines of humans and what I, what, what power I had mm. in terms of, like, making relationships and yeah. stuff like that. And that definitely... I don't know if that's translated into now. I hope not. <laughs> but that was a cool time to experiment. Don't catfish people. <laughs> <laughs> that, is not, that is not what we're saying <laughs> yes, here. No. No. But yeah, that is interesting. You know, especially being a 10-year-old. Like, <laughs> you probably one of the least powerful times in your life. Like, being able to do that, that is really I interesting. I, yeah, because that was like the first year I got my phone too, the, the beautiful wow. iPhone 4. Nice. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get a phone until I was in eighth grade. Wow. So that was fun. Yeah, um, that's okay though. I mean, yeah, I wasn't, like, I was the last one, like, in my class to get one. Really? But yeah, oh, I think no. so, or like one of the last ones. So that kind of sucked, but like, I didn't really need it until like that point. Well, I think, yeah, clearly 10 year olds don't have any <laughs> yeah. business with an iPhone. <laughs> I would just organize and reorganize my apps. <laughs> I didn't actually do anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Wild times. Wild. The original iPhone. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, so, and I think we all are voyeurs in a certain sense, which is For why sure. they're so easy to identify in mm -hmm. our society, like surveil surveillers versus voyeurs yeah um and obviously voyeurism is not good like don't mm -hmm. be a voyeur yeah um and if you don't know the definition to that it's someone who enjoys watching for some personal um they gain something from spying on people yeah yeah or spying on people in a in any way like that's a very broad definition yeah yeah oof mm-hmm big oof <laughs> <laughs> I almost think that V is a voyeur in V So the premise of V for Vendetta is that um, the war is ravaged by the world is ravaged by nuclear war, and out of that, the Norse fire fascist regime in London, and there's this uh, dictatorship in London, and then V, the main character, he's very complex. Um, he is pitted as a villain and as a hero and as an anti-hero in the novel in various ways, <laughs> which is super exciting yes. for um, some yeah, people like us. And he decides that anarchy is the better solution for London and he overthrows the regime and uh, leaves the citizenry in a state of anarchy for another person in the novel to build the civilization back up. Yes. Yes. Alright, so voyeurism in the Well, one character specifically, um, the leader of the... Oh yeah, <laughs> um, Adam Susan. Yeah. <laughs> the leader, he um, has a little bit of uh, romantic involvement with uh, Fate, which is the, like, supercomputer that's sort of the central source of power in the dictatorship 
um, and he just sort of, he's obsessed with the computer and he like has the ability to see anything through it and yeah, it's just, he's framed as a very strange person, rightfully so, yes, due to his obsession with said computer and yeah. not anything else. Like really, he's defined more by his relationship to fate than he is any other yeah. aspect of him and he's almost incapable of social interaction or mm -hmm. social yeah and he definitely is a voyeur yeah. but he's not a voyeur for people he's a voyeur for fate he just kind of like what watches the the screen yeah. and like a smooth line oh whoa <laughs> really weird i actually think that v is a voyeur but kind of like a sick voyeur if you know what I mean. Like, okay. so there's a scene, um, Evie is a 16-year-old that V picks up and she's about to be gang raped, essentially, which is a point of heroism for him in the novel. But then he, uh, he puts, to put it vaguely, he puts her through a sequence of torture, much, much like his own torture that he had at the pest of the regime in a concentration camp. So, it's almost like he enjoyed watching her suffer. Yeah. Um, because it's implied that she's in this concentration camp or this torture chamber, um, controlled only by V for a while, like six mm -hmm. months or yeah, so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and so, yeah, that to me is a different kind of voyeurism. Yeah. Like he got enjoyment out of watching her suffering. I think so, and I think part of it too is sort of on a more abstract level, like he got enjoyment knowing that she started to approach the same sort of ideology that he has because mm -hmm. through going through that torture, his main goal was to get her to sort of see the idea of like freedom and like anarchy, anarchy and yeah. fascism in the same way that he did because he went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think he found the pleasure of almost moral voyeurism in that sense, watching her slowly transition from an impressionable teenager to a steel like victim. Woman, yeah. 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 <clears throat> and he also gets enjoyment out of watching like a lot of, it's implied that he watches a lot of crime and watches mm -hmm. other people in the regime that he's going to take down. Yeah. And he is manipulative in a way that suggests that he's been watching people. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, when he murders um, uh, one of the characters in the novel, he puts her diary out on her nightstand next mm -hmm. to her corpse. And so that implies that he knows where the diary is and that she wrote in it during, like, that he recognized it from his time at the concentration. Camp. Yeah. Yeah, and so it just kind of the amount of involvement that he has, particularly in his murders and in his... Um, little crimes that he does <laughs> yeah. um, is really scary and appalling. Yeah, I think an interesting aspect of V in general is like, and that I feel like that hasn't really been talked about a ton, is like his mental like stability, I guess. Like how, to what degree can we like attribute all of his actions and all of his like choices and morality yeah. to him as like an individual that's like very conscious and very um deliberate in all the things he's doing mm -hmm. or should we rather attribute it to the fact that he you know was tortured to such a degree and was injected with a serum that really messed 
or is implied to have really messed with his biology, like, is, like, how much of all the stuff he's doing is a result of that biological mutilation, or is it through just, like, going through the struggle of it? Because all the other prisoners who are put through the um, test of the biological mutilation end up dying and are, like, seriously messed up by it like in a lot of ways like physically more so but also internal organs and mentally Mentally, and I think even he's described to have like schizophrenic tendencies or something yeah like yeah and his cell and and so the equivalent to this is when people are trying to find out the way he thinks like the detectives Mm -hmm. in the novel they take lsd yeah but like very high concentrations of it in order to induce the same state that he's always in um and it describes his um bunk in his room room five and how he has a series of like ammonia yeah yeah and it smells like urine and a swimming pool apparently in his room and there's just these like complex patterns on the floor and the doctor that's uh observing him is saying I know it makes sense in his mind and yeah it just uh, it probably makes sense but what is the logic secure yeah yeah and that's something that I think like um and of this like subsequent argument that Nutri Vendetta is a utopia is that um they uh, they work on the assumption that V was cognizant of Mm -hmm. his actions yeah and is a hero and is therefore a hero um but I think more so that he is um, a deranged and helpless person mm-hmm. that is acting out out of fear yeah. and that he mobilizes the fear of everyone in the regime. And so that's kind of scary, yeah. like, that the regime made someone that's um, that's so, you know, it's almost like Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Like, they're able to um, make someone that would destroy themselves. Right, yeah. They claim that the call to anarchy is utopic, mm-hmm. but I actually think that he doesn't truly understand anarchy yeah. in its purest form because that would be every individual is equal in the society and there's some order coming out of all of these individuals like individuals are ultimately greater than society but he doesn't have any notion of the individual there's right. no evidence for that yeah. in the book um yeah and i think also the article too sort of idealizes the idea of an anarchic and anarchic yeah okay that sounded really weird um an anarchic utopia because it seems it frames it as sort of like the ideal like future for the society in v for vendetta because that's what v's been working towards when in reality like as they're sort of beginning to achieve at least that anarchy part of that the world is painted as just as bleak as when the novel started, just in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think it, the article that we read attributes too much to the idea of anarchy being like sort of a saving grace versus mm-hmm. actually just another more prob, another equally problematic um, uh, force to fascism. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. Definitely. And yeah, and again, V is just such a such a compelling character. Yeah. And such a, a character worth worth thinking about. For sure. I hope that you enjoyed 
Adam and I's crazy ramblings in a somewhat bizarre episode of the show, and obviously recommend that you go back and listen to episode 22, which is all about dystopian fiction and is, of course, better maintained than the conversation that you just heard. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there's an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes, which should be available on any podcasting app. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at didionandhawthorne.blueberry.net, and remember that blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. February, so starting with the next episode, we are going to do the hashtag love of February mini-series that explores romance from classic to contemporary. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at in two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course new projects and episodes relating to DH&I, including the entire list of episodes that we're doing in February. Our next episode is about why first edition books are so valuable, a topic requested by many of you actually already. Still there? One more thing then, remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other guilty pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Our next episode is airing on February 3rd, and I wanted to give a special thanks to Chad Crouch, who composed some of the music, the new music that you have heard on the last few episodes. Thank you. See you on Sunday.